Welcome to another edition of the Journal of African History podcast. My name is Moses Ochonu. I'm with Vanderbilt University, and I'm one of the primary editors at the journal. Today, I have a pleasure of being joined by Dr. Elizabeth Jacob, who is a postdoctoral fellow in the Department of History and Classics at Providence College. Her article appears in the current issue of the Journal of African History, Volume 63, Issue 3, which is the last issue of the year. Her article is titled, Militant Mothers, Gender and the Politics of Anti-Colonial Action in Côte d'Ivoire. This article is already available on first view, already getting a lot of readership and it's getting a lot of traction. You can read it for free on the website of the Journal of African History. I want to welcome uh, Dr. Jacob to the postcard. Welcome, Dr. Jacob. Thank you for having me. Your, your article is fascinating on, many, on so many levels. So it's a pleasure to delve into the article and to try to you know, understand it better with you. Your article analyzes this march by 2,000 Ivorian women at the Grand Bassam Prison in December 1949, and they were protesting the detention of anti-colonial militants of the Parti Democratique de Côte d'Ivoire, the PDCI. You argue in this piece that the march changed the course of the anti-colonial nationalist struggle in Côte d'Ivoire. What specifically is the significance of this march in the historiography of the anti-colonial struggle in Côte d'Ivoire, in Francophone Africa, and in Africa generally? Thank you for this question. So this 1949 Women's March inscribes itself in the broader history of the Ivorian anti-colonial movement. Many who are more familiar with the history of the anti-colonial movement in French West Africa would know that in you know, 1946, we see the founding of the Rassemblement Démocratique Africain, or RDA, and the PDCI is the Ivoirian branch of this anti-colonial political party that is really militating to try to win greater rights of, of citizenship, of autonomy within the broader French Union at this time. And so as these organizations are militating for greater rights, we see beginning in, let's say, 1948, 1949, increasing levels of violence in, ter in the terms of clashes between anti-colonial activists throughout French-speaking West Africa, but in particular in Côte d'Ivoire with French colonial administrators. And so it's during this period of, of around 1949 to 1950 that you see increasing incarceration of anti-colonial activists. Some 3,000 um, activists are jailed. Over 50 people are killed in courses of various clashes between French authorities and anti-colonial activists, and countless more are wounded. So this is a big moment of violence and instability. In a broader anti-colonial history, history of decolonization that's often depicted as relatively peaceful. I think it's Tony Chafer who describes it as kind of a peaceful decolonization. So this is a big moment of unrest. And it's during this period that women really start to engage much more visibly and actively in the anti-colonial movement. And so I read, and I think many historians of Côte d'Ivoire, see the history of the Ivorian 
Women's March on Grand Bassam as this real watershed moment in terms of raising awareness, raising visibility of the, the injustices and the violence that was happening during this period. One of the things that I, I like to ask in this podcast is the question of how we as scholars and historians get into certain topics and how we get you know into the research itself. So I want to ask you the same question as to, you know, how did you get into this topic? So I've been working on this piece or living with this piece for quite a while now. I began it uh, some seven years ago, I want to say. And it was a curiosity that eventually informed the broader scope of my dissertation and was now my book project. This is really an a stand, and not only a piece that I hope speaks for itself, but is part of a broader project I'm working on. And the way I came to this question was, I think, in the act of asking a rather unfashionable question of, you know, in the history of decolonization, where are the women? And I was just hunting for a project as a first year graduate student. And I came to um, the very excellent Women Writing Africa series, um, and in particular, the West Africa and Sahel volume. And it was in reading this volume, I came across the testimony of Anne-Marie Dragy, who is one of the leaders of the Ivorian anti-colonial movement and one of real key force in the Women's March on Grand Bassam. And in reading her testimony and her politics, I was just immediately captured by the history of the Ivorian women's movement, um, not only for its size and visibility, this, you know, this vision of 2,000 women marching on the prison at Grand Bassam, also just the sheer vivacity and audaciousness of, of the women themselves and the kinds of testimonies that were available to me that were recorded. So it was just immediately just very inspired and energized by the story. And I wanted to know more. And in particular, in trying to think about the place of this march in the broader arc of Ivorian decolonization, I wanted to know, you know, if this march was indeed as wonderful and powerful and exciting as these testimonies and archival evidence seems to suggest, then why does the broader women's anti-colonial movement seem relatively short-lived? More around 1952, you more or less see a complete drop-off in mentions of women's activism. So that was really the origin of this project and how I started thinking about the nature of women's politics in Cote d'Ivoire. Could you help us understand some of the key historiographical interventions of the piece, some of the key arguments. And feel free to reference, you know, the broader project as well that you spoke about earlier. I'm very fortunate to be operating within what I think is a very rich and fascinating historiography of women's participation in African decolonization. I think we know very well by now that women are indeed extremely active in anti-colonial movements. Most recently, we have Jude Byfield writing on women's activism in Nigeria. Maris Kothor is doing really wonderful work on the Nana Benz in Togo. And this also stems really, you know, has been going on for decades now. Susan Geiger writing on women in Tanzania, part of Tanu, Elizabeth Schmidt on women in Guinea. So we have this real understanding that women were indeed involved. The basic where are the women question in some senses has been answered. And I think I participate in this broader scholarly engagement with just women's tenacity in the face of colonial violence, their ability to stand up to this patriarchal power. I think where my work starts to deviate from the broader historiography is really wondering why their women's action is not more enduring in the post-colonial period. Much of the work, and for very good reasons, 
is very celebratory of women's action. And it's hard not to be because it's so exciting. And I personally am very inspired by it. But I had to ask, answer this question, you know, why aren't I finding more evidence of women's activism after, you know, the early 1950s? Why is this the case? And this pushed me to really start thinking much more about the nature of women's activism, that it wasn't only these very spectacular marches and boycotts, but also women's activism really involved a lot of daily caring labor. Women were responsible for feeding and clothing prisoners as they were incarcerated. They were involved in organizing various party meetings, spreading the word of the PDCI throughout the colony, and really engaged in a kind of politics that I and other historians of African women have come to refer to as the concept of public motherhood. And public motherhood, we can describe as a social institution whereby women draw on their social and or biological status as mothers to make moral and political claims in community life. And so you see these these women who are participating in the anti-colonial movement. They're not necessarily presenting themselves as future citizens of an independent republic. These women are drawing on their authority as wives and mothers and you know presenting themselves as wives and mothers in their testimonies and saying I'm a mother, I have a certain kind of authority that comes with being a caregiver in my community. I'm drawing on this, uh, this authority to make interventions into community life. And so by using this lens of public motherhood to interpret women's activism in Cote d'Ivoire, I found it very productive because it really helped me to understand what women's activism actually looked like and what sort of mechanisms were in place to, to suppress women's ability to make themselves known in public life. So what I ultimately try to argue is that this vision of public motherhood that's drawing on very long-standing ideas of African women's authority and community life, you know, this this doesn't exist in a vacuum. It exists in the same world where motherhood has many other kinds of reference. These ideas of maternal domesticity or more bourgeois ideas about women being housewives, these are ideas that reserve motherhood for the home. And they're very much in the same world that these women are operating within in the late 1940s and early 50s in Cote d'Ivoire. And so I argue that in the case of the Ivoirean anti-colonial movement, party elites initially very much celebrated women's performances of public motherhood. It's a very powerful challenge to French colonial rule. But as I try to argue in the course of the article is that when party elites political priorities began to shift, most notably in favor of a kind of tacit cooperation with French authorities, they began to reframe women's activism from being this kind of very empowered public motherhood into something that looked more like an Amazonian recklessness or disorder. So really imbibing these French colonial norms, these ideas that that motherhood is reserved for the so-called private sphere and using that as a way to limit women's participation in the very public world of the anti-colonial movement. Wow, this is incredibly insightful. In your article, this this really has opened my eyes to see this connection, this nexus between this theoretical framing of public motherhood and what you signaled earlier in terms of the absence of legacies and an enduring impact of uh, women's activism in the post-colonial period. You know, it connects to the explanation for that, for that absence, connects to 
the very public motherhood enabled them to make the intervention in the colonial period in the first place. That's, that's, that's a fascinating connection there. Uh, so thank you. I mean, that's very, very, very insightful. It actually anticipated a question now that I had about this very idea of public motherhood. Uh, I wonder if you could just briefly help us to understand that uh, broader cultural genealogy that enables women to draw upon their role as mothers to make interventions in public life. So public motherhood has a long history in Côte d'Ivoire. The best way to think about it is with the story of Aropoku, the founder of the Baule Kingdom. In the 18th century, according to legend, she is engaging in a flight from Kumasi, it was today Ghana, She's fleeing a succession dispute, and she has hundreds of followers coming along in her wake. On the course of their journey, they approach the River Komoe, which is very rough, and they cannot cross it. So according to legend, in order to cross the river safely, Poku very willingly sacrifices her only child. And so the river calms, women are able to cross it, and she becomes, by virtue of her sacrifice, queen of the ballet kingdom. The ballet kingdom really preserves this history of maternal sacrifice as part of one of the key identifiers of what it means to be part of this ballet community. Their matrilineal inheritance practices are often referred to as a reflection of that. And ballet itself means the child is dead. So it's really memorializing this history of maternal sacrifice. And so you see this value of maternal action, maternal authority in the structure of ballet communities where women are seen as complementary counterparts to men in ballet life. And so men and women have in many ways what's seen as separate but equal roles. Women are providers, women participate on councils of the notables. Some women could even serve as chiefs in their own right. And so it's this vision of women's authority that is very much shaped by these basic gendered expectations of caregiving and nurture. That's how I would explain what the history of public motherhood really looks like in Côte d'Ivoire. Women are able to draw on this kind of public authority, but it's very much framed in the context of very gendered social roles. Excellent. Thank you. I'm going to go back to something that you touched upon earlier, which I, I found to be fascinating, the fact that you don't see a lot of continuities of these types of public motherhood, public activism by women. You don't see a lot of uh, evidence in the archive. So it begs uh, all kinds of questions about what's happening you know, in the post-colonial period. Did they just get written out of the archive or did they cease to engage in these types of public political activism? So, I mean, you argue in the piece that as significant as the women's uh, march was, Tori illustrates both the possibilities and the limits of women's uh, activism in the anti-colonial movement. Uh, I find that to be quite fascinating and intriguing in the sense that in some ways it's a paradox, right? So uh, I wonder if you could help our listeners uh, understand that paradox. Thank you for that question. I think you really get at what is the heart of the tension of the piece is that public motherhood really features and enables women to make a variety of extremely powerful claims and challenges to colonial rule. Not only are women feeding and clothing prisoners, they're also 
you know, engaging in these very spectacular marches and, and boycotts. And they're very, offering this very public challenge to colonial rule in ways that I want to emphasize are, are completely authorized by their community life. This is not necessarily an aberration. These are part of the very longstanding history of women's, women's participation in community life. But I also want to emphasize that this vision of public motherhood doesn't exist in a vacuum and that you know, women may, may continue to, to engage in these acts of public motherhood to make these spectacular protests or to participate in the anti-colonial movement, but they don't always get to, to dictate how their actions are received. And so I argue in the course of this piece that it's really party elites, elites who are leading the PDCI, who make a choice, who really see that whereas women's spectacular activism was very effective during this particular period of extreme violence and brutality in the late 40s, early 50s in Cote d'Ivoire, when they decide to cut a deal to disaffiliate from the French Communist Party and to engage in much more conciliatory relations with France, women's modes of protest, both spectacular and mundane, don't necessarily have that kind of place in this context of Franco-African cooperation. And so what is initially celebrated as being very powerful and effective critique of colonial rule suddenly starts to be seen as something that is potentially subversive or difficult to control. And so in that way, party elites really make an effort to try to delegitimize these acts of public motherhood, this kind of political protest that they had once really cherished. Now they see it as something that's potentially more reckless or disorderly, or uh, as many of their writings call Amazonian, rather than something that's emerging along this longer history of maternal um, activism. Thank you. Uh, so the final question, I'm sure some of our listeners will be wondering about the methodological and archival and conceptual aspects of this piece. What challenges, methodological or archival, did you encounter in researching and writing this article? And how did you confront or resolve these challenges? Writing this piece, frankly, was very fun because unlike other parts of my work, there is actually a wealth of archival and recorded oral testimonies that relate to the broader history of the Ovarian Women's March. The project really emerges from the kind of classic advice you give graduate students when they're hunting around for projects, like find a big event and really dig into it. And so this Women's March was part of this broader move moment where 1949 to 50, we see this swirling moment of anti-colonial violence in Cote d'Ivoire. And it is of the violence and the instability is at a level where the French colonial administration is moved to form an inquiry commission um, to investigate into the origins of what they were referring to the incidents in Cote d'Ivoire. And so there is a three-volume inquiry commission of some 1,000 pages that's documenting just this broader moment, but also, quite fortunately for me, documents women's recorded testimonies of why they're participating in these various boycotts or, you know, these different moments that the French are trying to investigate as potentially subversive and, and dangerous. The women are clearly articulating their own position, saying, for example, you know, they had, there's a PDCI member who was 
who was arrested by the French administration. This is a man who has 18 children at home. We need to get him out of jail. And really articulating themselves sometimes is harder to find in other kinds of other moments of Ivorian history or just in general when you're studying African women's history. So this inquiry commission really helps frame this moment. And because, again, because it's such a big moment, you see French police reports that are documenting the unrest. And also, I think, so really just in the moment itself, it was a very much an archival event, very much documented. But also because the Ivorian Women's March on Gromasam really looms large in Ivorian history itself. There's huge work of commemoration that's that's regularly done. And so the first big moment of commemoration was really in 1975 in the moment of the International Women's Year. And the Ivorian historian and now politician Aurélie Djibate wrote um, a key source for this article, which is a book about the Women's March on Grand Bassam. And it's really in this vein of celebrating women's action and trying to document various oral histories. And it's just like, it's such a wonderfully rich text. But again, I think does absolutely participate in this more triumphalist vision of women's anti-colonial action. And so drawing on these different kinds of sources, these recorded testimonies and archival sources, I was able to bring together a sense of of what was going on. And one of the, the greatest things about working on an event that's generally very well known is that you can ask people about it. You can ask people about what what they thought of the Ivorian Women's March. So people would say, oh yeah, women used to be so active then. They're not really active now. And I said, well, why do you think that is? Why do you think that happened? And I found that kind of productive for just thinking about this broader arc of women's activism in Cote d'Ivoire. There are certainly many feminist groups active in Cote d'Ivoire today that really often point to the Women's March as a kind of key moment of women's activism. And it's often this key referent, you know, articulating what it means to be a woman in Ivorian society, what it means to challenge injustice, what it means to advocate for one's community. It was, it's, it's always just been very fun and, and rich to dig into the sources of such a well-documented moment because other parts of my work are not, do not necessarily benefit from this kind of archival richness. Well, thank you so much. I mean, it's, uh, we, we historians, we often uh, are obsessed about archival and methodological difficulties and challenges. We don't often take a step back to talk about archival joys and pleasures and satisfactions. So it's good to hear you talk about how much fun you had with this material and uh, writing and researching this uh, paper. Uh, we've come to the end of the podcast. We are so happy to have uh, Dr. Jacob giving us a rich, a lot of rich uh, entry points into the article. The article, again, is titled Militant Mothers, Gender and the Politics of Anti-Colonial Action in Côte d'Ivoire. And it's available now on First View on the website of the Journal of African History. You can read it for free. So I encourage you to go and read this fascinating article. Thank you, Dr. Jacob, for joining us. Thank you for having me.